the Auburn Plainsman. This is Sweet 1111. I'm Miley, podcast editor for The Plainsman. This week, we talked with students about what they did over the summer, from rediscovering a species once believed to be extinct to wrangling alpacas. Stay with us. Hey, this is Miley, podcast editor for The Auburn Plainsman. If you like this podcast and would like to support this organization and our team, you can visit our website at theplainsman.com and click on the button in the upper right-hand corner that says Donate. You'll be supporting over 127 years of local, editorially independent journalism right here in Auburn. Once again, that is theplainsman.com. Thank you so much in advance. Now back to the show. There aren't many field biologists left out there, according to Noah Yon. The cool sciences, that's genetics, molecular biology, and bioinformatics. They get all the attention, and all the money. But field biology is just as important, he argues. And it's always been his calling. Double majoring in organismal biology and geology, with a focus on systemic botany and conservation, Noah is trying to remake his own botany major with what Auburn has to offer, as the botany program at Auburn was absorbed into biological sciences a few years ago. But um, there's a few botanists left at Auburn, which is nice. But um, yeah, so organismal biology was kind of the closest thing to that. And geology, there's a really strong connection between the two um, that I don't think is emphasized enough. But um, yeah, so lots of biogeography type things, plant geology, plant community geology relationships, that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, hoping to use that as a tool for future things. My, My big, you know, kind of core calling, I get not calling, but I don't know what you want to call it, um, field biology, that's, we don't have enough field biologists out there anymore, there, there used to be a bunch, but it's kind of considered old science, even though it's it's needed, you, know, you got to have kind of your your worker bees out there getting data on, on what grows or lives or whatever, your botanist or zoologist or whatever. Noah's interest in plants was seeded at a young age by his grandmother, who bought him a Venus flytrap when he was 10. They fed the plant hamburger meat, and maybe unsurprisingly, it died a few months later. But they tried again, and made it a little longer, those little moments adding up to Fuel's interest and love for plants. When it came time to decide his next step after high school, Auburn's faculty in Arboretum gave him a look inside and kick-started his undergraduate yeah, studies. Yeah, so those little moments kind of added up, and um, I ended up senior year of high school talking with Patrick Thompson at the Davis Arboretum on campus, and um, Dr. Bob Boyd, who's now the associate dean for academic affairs, I think, but he was a professor when I met him. Um, but both of those are plant people and kind of got a little inside scoop into Auburn, and that's kind of what made me um, come here. So got a job at the Arboretum when I got here in August, and uh, August of freshman year, and um, kind of kick-started that. So, and the Arboretum is home to the Alabama Plant Conservation Alliance. It's kind of the main um, seat for that organization, and that, that was able to get me exposed to a couple other things. Figure, oh, hey, I really like doing this conservation stuff. Let's, let's go a little bit further. Being interested in conservation, Noah worked alongside the Southern Grasslands Initiative, a nonprofit based out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, at Austin P. State University, where their core mission is grassland conservation. According to Noah, the eastern U.S. didn't used to be solid forest. It used to be a long, expansive grassland, which you can see examples of along the side of roads and highways. These species of grass are the only remnants of the ecological makeup of 200 to 300 years ago. Before we came along, 
the state of Alabama would burn every two to five years, according to NOAA. And this burning would keep the biodiversity of the area high by allowing for new species to grow. During the past 200 years, though, fire suppression has kept the native biodiversity low. And it turns out that this fire suppression played a part in NOAA's summer discovery of a plant species that was once thought to be extinct. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's not as great as it sounds, but uh, yeah, so... You know, anytime I go out into the woods, out into the field, um, I always learn something new and just keeping eyes on the ground, that's that's important. And so, you know, I, I wouldn't call myself a botanist yet, per se, but um, maybe grasshopper level. On Fledgling. Level. Fledgling, yeah. Padawan. Um, but yeah, so me and my, my mentor with the USGS, his name's Alan, we were stomping around Bibb County, Alabama, which is way out in the boonies if you've ever been um, near. Near Maplesville, whatever county or whatever city. Anyways, um, so we were stopping around this this uh, place that's near the Bibb County Glades, and so that's, that's a whole other story in and of itself. If you look up the Bibb County Glades, it's a really neat story. Um, but the Alabama U-Haul truck, if you ever pass that, they have a big flower picture on the side of it. That's the uh, that's an ode to the Bibb County Glades. It's a super high. Um, endemism area and it's small small areas outcroppings of dolomite that come up to the surface and it turns out that that's another prairie system you have longleaf pine around these things uh, they used to be burned but um yeah and so we were looking around there and ended up finding a, a plant that hadn't been seen in alabama since the 1940s which is pretty cool so it's the american barberry berberus canadensis if you're interested won't be tested on that but <laughs> scientific names an endemic species, which is a general term for a species that occupies a certain geographical area, is a metric that's often used to judge biodiversity. If plant conservation wasn't important enough, with the changes to our local and global ecological systems through climate change, coastal Alabama, as well as the Panhandle in some parts of North Carolina, sports the highest number of species per square meter anywhere on the entire planet. A few places. You have southeastern endemics where they only grow in the southeast. Um, you have single site endemics where they only grow at this one spot in the world, and that's it. Um, so kind of a broad term, but uh, it's an important term. That's that's kind of the currency that you know, NatureServe and some of these big conservation organizations use to gauge you know, different communities. Whether you know it was used to figure out, okay, well the southeastern U.S. kind of a biodiversity hotspot hiding under our noses. Um, when you think of biodiversity, you think of you know, Amazon rainforest, that kind of thing, New Caledonia, whatever. Um, but it turns out, if you were to lay a one meter by one meter square on the ground, you know, off the coast of, uh, or not off the coast, down on the coast in the Florida Panhandle, Apalachicola region, or um, coastal North Carolina, that kind of thing, the amount of species in that one meter squared would be the highest number of species you could tally up anywhere on the earth, which is insane. So that's highest species richness on the planet, right there in North Carolina or Florida Panhandle, which is insane. The first time Charlie Bailey, junior in mechanical engineering, saw an alpaca, he wasn't trying to pet it. He was trying to wrangle it get it on the ground, and tie it up so someone else could shear off its fibers. Alpaca fiber is apparently very valuable. Charlie called it some of the nicest fiber in the world, and the best of what is sheared is used for socks and yarn, but it's not an easy process shearing. 
Alpacas are very antisocial, so when you grab them, they freak out. They'll scream, spit, pee, anything. It's a dirty job, one that Charlie spent two months this summer doing on farms all around the U.S., through Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Colorado, sometimes helping shear over 100 alpacas in a day. It it was, yeah, it was weird the first time, but, like, you're just so immersed in it for two months that mm-hmm. by the end of it, like, this is the only thing you've ever known, you know? <laughs> like, like this is who I am. I can handle this animal, like, really well. Um, so, like, I don't even remember what I thought when I first started. Um, yeah. But... As an alpaca wrangler, Charlie first was the head man. Since alpaca necks are so long, someone has to hold the animal in place so it doesn't thrash around. He would also prepare the next alpaca to be sheared while the shearer was busy on one. It took the shearer about five to seven minutes for each alpaca. Meanwhile, Charlie sets the next animal down, pulls the rope tight, and even trims down the nails and its teeth, which can get too long and need to be filed down. Most of the people they met kept the alpacas as pets, but other large-scale places they sheared at kept alpacas as show animals. Well, I would get really nervous when we were doing the nice ones because I didn't want to mess anything up. Mm-hmm. But we sheared um, an alpaca that was the most expensive alpaca to ever be sold. Um, what? And it's old now, so it's not really worth much anymore. Yeah. But its name is Matrix. And I believe, I might have to look it up, I believe it sold for $375,000. The value in the animals comes from the quality of their fiber. Not all alpaca fiber is made the same, though. Man, so you kind of grade alpaca off three things. I can't remember exactly what they are, but one of it's like the crinkle. So, like, imagine like a crinkle fry. Um, there's kind of like some bend to it. Um, so you grade it off that. You also grade it off like the length that it grows um, in one year's time. And then I think the third one is like it almost creates like a web. In between everything. So when you shear the blanket, the nicest part, it all sticks together. And so it's like a web almost. If you feel it, it's like really squishy, but it's really soft. Um, and it's just like really nice. Oh, my God. So the best ones will have like a lot of crinkle, a lot of depth, and will like be pretty like like together, you know? Yeah. And the not nice ones will just everything will fall apart. That was Collins Keith, podcast writer, and Trice Brown, our multimedia editor. We'll be right back. I'm Miley, podcast editor for The Plainsman, and this is your news for the week. During the first week of fall classes, 424 Auburn students and employees reported testing positive for COVID-19. Over 21% of those who received a COVID-19 test from the Auburn University Medical Clinic tested positive during that week. Dr. Fred Cam, director of the medical clinic, said the return to campus, an increased testing capacity, and the spread of the Delta variant are all reasons for the spike in reported cases. The overwhelming majority of those who tested positive were unvaccinated. After a win against Jackson State on Saturday, Auburn volleyball has improved its record this season to 2-0. Auburn won the first set 25-9 and the second and third 25-13 and 25-11 respectively. On Friday night, the Tigers will play their first game of 2021 Southeastern Showdown Tournament in Hammond, Louisiana. 
Their opponents that weekend include Southern University, Southeastern Louisiana, and Cal State Fullerton. This has been your news for the week. Now back to the show. Ellis Spieler, a junior in mechanical engineering, spent his summer as a water rafting guide in a small town in Montana called Gardner for the Flying Pig Adventure Company. Um, yeah, so it's actually a pretty cool story. So apparently, I mean, legend has it um, <laughs> that uh, <clears throat> the first owner wanted to take his kayak from the confluence of where the Gardner River meets the Yellowstone River, which is like the very north entrance of Yellowstone National Park. And he wanted to take it all the way through Yellowstone River to where it meets the Mississippi. Sorry, it goes through the Missouri before that and then the Mississippi and then down to the Gulf of Mexico. So he wanted to, yeah, he wanted to take it. I think it took him like three months or something to actually do it. So he wanted to do this journey and he asked his grandfather for like some startup money. And his grandfather kind of laughed it off and was like, oh, you'll do that when pigs fly. So he ended up doing it, and his grandfather was so proud of him after the fact that he gave him the startup money for the company. And then it's been passed down through. This summer, Ellis was considering taking classes at Auburn, but when he found out they were online, he decided against it. With a free summer ahead, Ellis's brother asked him if he would want to come to Gardner. Ellis's brother attended Auburn University and was also a raft guide at the same location, and according to Ellis, taught him everything he knows about rafting. You have no idea. I was so ready to get out of Auburn last semester because I was just so like, I mean, it was a mix between social anxiety and depression because I was separated from like all of my social interactions. So I was like, I can't wait to get a Gardner. I can't wait to get a Gardner because in Gardner, it doesn't matter. Like everybody's your friend, basically. And you can just talk to anybody. So last semester, were you... When Ellis arrived in Montana, the training to become a raft guide began. Ellis said the summer was extremely busy with only 10 raft guides on staff over the summer, and there was very little opportunity for time off yeah, during the so week. What was that training process? We, our company took it pretty seriously, actually. We had a two-week training process where um, we, it, was, it was very, I don't know, it was pretty intense. So we would go through some of the most technical parts of the river, um, just kind of getting to know the river. Uh, within those two weeks, we would learn how to read water, guide a boat using just the paddle, and then eventually guide a boat using the oar frames that we would take customers on. Um, and then we would have to do a two-mile swim with just a buddy down river, down what we called the town stretch, which was basically just I don't know, there were some class two slash two pluses that you had to swim through just to kind of get to know the river a little bit. And then there's a lot of running, planking, tying knots. In Montana, Uh, Ellis lived in a room in the shop that provided him and other staff members beds for the summer. The rooms were made up of bunk beds, a kitchen, a bathroom, a living area, but nothing was better than the view Ellis had from his room. Right, so we were one of the only companies in town to launch right from our shop. So we were right on the river. And so we would walk down to the river and just get in our boats and we would go eight miles 
or 18 miles, depending on what trip we were taking. And then we would shuttle the customers and the boats back along with us. And <clears throat> so across the river was all Yellowstone National Park, right outside of our shop. So we had the the river, the Yellowstone River, and then right on the other side was Yellowstone National Park. And then we had a mountain range called the Gallatin Mountain Range, like right on the other side of the river. Um, and the mountain range included a mountain called Sepulchre, a mountain called Sleeping Mammoth, and Electric Peak. And you could see all those. And Electric Peak was like, I don't know, had an elevation of like 10,996 feet tall, something like that. I knew it was just shy of 11,000, so... Maggie Nelson, a junior in aerospace engineering, like so many others, grew up wanting to be an astronaut. As soon as she could even think about doing a job, she wanted to go to space. When it came time to graduate high school, she had to decide her next steps, keeping her childhood wishes in mind. I wanted to keep that sort of like innate curiosity from when you're a kid. And I was like, well, I liked space. I, I had a ton of Legos and Kinects and stuff, so I was like... Maybe aerospace engineering could be cool because um, the long-term goal is not necessarily going into space. If the opportunity came around, I would not say no. <laughs> um, but yeah, right now I want to do like uh, sustainable rockets for space mm. travel. But, you know, if they send me to space, I wouldn't be mad. <laughs> okay. Her interest in sustainability led to her working with Auburn professor Russell Malin, who is performing research on shape memory polymers. Think of it like self-folding origami. When the material is exposed to infrared light, it folds however you want it to. So when a material like this goes into space, it's exposed to this environment and folds by itself. Over the summer, Maggie's work began, where she tested the recyclability of the shape memory polymers. So, so I am coming in and recycling this type of material and then, hmm. you know, testing it. Like, I have this whole breakdown. I essentially smash plastic with a hammer, melt it, and then form it into whatever I want, like a flat plate of material. And then I'll test that um, to see the degradation that occurs, to see how long it's viable. And this is like hmm. the big, like long-term idea is uh, for like, if we're going on a mission to Mars and we're up in space for a really long time, it's using like the resources that we have available to us within our environment rather than hmm. depending on shipments from Earth or something okay. like that. Every weekday over the summer, Maggie was in the office, hammering and melting and reforming this material, which takes a lot more time than it sounds. She was able to recycle the material six times over the summer, and says it's still viable, so she'll keep hammering, melting, and reforming for the rest of the semester as well. For her work, Maggie won an award from the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation. At a conference in Orlando, she got to meet the other scholars, including the other women. That was one thing that I was looking forward to, was getting to meet the other girls in STEM and, like, yeah. the other girls in aerospace or engineering. Mm -hmm. So there was definitely a good amount, um, considering, you know, what we have to deal with sometimes. Yeah. Um, I, I have a big mouth when it comes to this. <laughs> I've talked to about everybody in it. Okay. Um, it has been interesting. Mm -hmm. Like, Auburn is great. I love it. And 
like it has done so much. The people here have done so much for me. They mm-hmm. constantly show me that they support me, and you know that makes me want to support them. But you know, it, it is a male-dominated field, you know, and so the atmosphere, even in a college, is going to be male-dominated. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I was prepared to a certain extent going into engineering. I knew yeah. that, you know, I was going to be one of the few girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't realize, you know, actually experiencing that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was a little different. It's it's interesting. Maggie said um, the expectations for women in STEM are different than for that of men, and they can be treated differently, too. Sometimes, classmates will assume she doesn't know what's going on or say that someone's only asking her for help because she's a woman. Being able to network with other women through the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation has completely remotivated her, she said, and helped her see the long-term picture, which can be difficult to see sometimes. Maggie does not like free time, so she's even taken up a second research project that she'll work on this semester, in addition to her other and 17 hours of class. There are certain disciplines in engineering where you see women, uh, the retention rates for women are significantly lower than the others, and aerospace is one of them. Mm. Um, And so if you look at it like that, then that, you know, they do a lot of outreach, and they do a lot of, like, we want you, you know, and you get here, and then there also needs to be something established to make sure that they stay here and, like, support them while they're in, you know, the major. Yeah. So it's more of, like, a cultural shift that has mm. to happen. And it's, like, it's slowly happening. It is. It's it's something you can't do 180 overnight. Yeah. So um, it's slow, but, you know, we're doing little steps here and there. That's what, you know, I've talked with people. I've made sure they're actually doing things. So mm. I'm, I'm one of those. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I, I come in and they're, like, they start getting scared because I keep bringing up issues, <laughs> things like that. But, yeah. Okay. So, what... Sweet 1111. I'm Miley, signing off. See you next week.